As we were singing one of those songs, um, man, I was just praying for, for you and for us today. Um, because I think some of the lyrics there were talking about, Lord, like I'm here, arms open, like I'm here, speak to my heart. And, and I think sometimes, and sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's accidental, sometimes we just don't mean it. Like we wake up and we just, we're super hardened to what the Lord has to say. And we're just super hardened to like people and hardened to the worship and, and hardened to the word of God. And, uh, and I was just praying for us and I was just like, Lord, like I hope that today, that this morning we would not be hardened, that we would not walk in like this. And, and if we did, that we would be really open and just available to the Lord and what he has to say. Um, because we have to, we have to be open and available to the Lord. And so uh, I just want to say buenos dias and good morning just one more time. And uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Misael, and I'm just super grateful uh, if you're visiting today. I hope someone has given you a handshake, a high five, or at least a smile, you know, at least a smile today. Um, and so I don't know about you guys, but like the more I, I have birthdays, the more I just begin to recognize that there are things in life I cannot get away from. There are things in life that just have to happen. There's things I cannot escape. The more I have birthdays, the more I have birthdays. And I just want to give you one example of those and maybe uh, some others. And so as I've had more birthdays in my life and I've gone to different barber shops as an adult, um, you know, I've gone to different barber shops and just, you know, I go, I sit down, they cut my hair, I leave, I pay, I, can, I give them one of these and I walk away. But... There was one particular time where I went to this, this barber shop, again, later on in my life. I sit down, they give me my haircut. I'm like, cool. I pay, and I'm about to leave. And the barber looks at me and he goes, hey, did I not do a good job? And I was like, dude, no, what are you talking about? You, you did a great job. Like, I love my haircut. He goes, are you sure? And I was like, yes. I was like, look at this fade, man. It looks awesome. He goes, okay, it's just you didn't tip. So I was just curious. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? He goes, you know, you're supposed to tip if, if, if you think I did a good job. And I was like, I didn't know that. I was like, I've gone a lot of my life not tipping my people who cut my hair. And so he explained to me, hey, man, you, you need a tip. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, and so since then, I, I've been tipping barbers uh, who cut my hair. And I'm grateful for him because he taught me something really, really valuable. I cannot escape tipping people. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm working on that right now, still in my life, uh, doing better at that. Um, but there's a couple things in life we just can't escape. You know, tipping is one of those. Um, you know, some other people would say taxes. You know, we can't escape taxes, especially in the United States. Uh, we can't escape it, you know, as much uh, as we try to. And then not to get morbid or whatever, uh, not that taxes are not morbid, but we can't escape death. Okay, we can't escape death. All of us, unless Jesus returns like right now or in our lifetime, we will not escape tasting death. And then to go a little bit further, none of us can escape judgment either. None of us can escape judgment and looking at the Lord face to face, looking at the King of Kings face to face and facing judgment. And, and one of the ways I want to phrase that today is, we cannot escape our court date. We can't escape our court date. And so the title for today is Our Court Date. Nuestra fecha de corte. We can't, we can't escape it. 
One day we will look at our, at our king. One day we will look at the Lord God Almighty face to face at our court date, looking at him and saying, Lord, this is who I am. And he's going to look at us and, and ask the different questions. And so as we look at today's passage, we have to understand that we have this court date set before us. And one of these days we will be in front of the Lord. And my prayer really is that today we would leave with confidence. We would leave with so much confidence that Jesus Christ is the one that represents us. That he is the one that represents us at this court date. And so I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, Apocalipsis capítulo 20. It's the very, very last book of the Bible. And then the, the big number, number 20, that's the chapter. And so before we read uh, this together, uh, we're going to be in verse 11, by the way. But before we read this together, we have to understand just a couple things of this book and a couple things of what's going on. And so we have to understand that Revelation is an apocalyptic book. So there's a lot of imagery in it. There's a lot of truth in it. And so some of it is easy to understand. Some of it is hard to understand. And so the idea for today is not necessarily to look at all the details and all the imagery and understand everything about it. But I want to make sure we get to the main focus of Revelation chapter 20. And so before we get to the main focus, we do have to understand what's going on before verses 11 to 17, which is what we're going to read and be in. Before we read there, we have to kind of go at verse 1 of, of chapter 20 and, and just look at everything that's going on. And it's talking about these thousands, uh, this thousand years. Um, and John, who's the one who's writing this, he sees the devil and others bound up and, and chained up for a thousand years. He sees these martyrs who are people who have died for the sake of Jesus and the name of Jesus. They've died and, and so now they, John says that he sees them reigning with the Lord for these years. And then he sees Satan again released uh, after a thousand years. But literally right after being released, he is swallowed up uh, by this fire and then thrown into the lake of fire. And so when it comes to these thousand years, there's a lot of uh, viewpoints there. And I'm just going to give you the three biggest viewpoints just so we can talk about it, share, share about it, and you can do more research about it. And there are these big words, but I'm going to try to simplify it just a little bit. So there's this big word called premillennialism. Okay, premillennialism. Try saying that five times. Please don't right now. But that means pre-thousand years. That's what pre-millennialism means, pre-thousand years. And, and this phrase really helps us understand how there is a viewpoint where Jesus Christ will physically return before the thousand years that John is talking about here. That's what pre-millennialism means. There's another viewpoint out there that is post-millennialism. Try saying that seven times. Which means, you know, post or after the thousand years that... Uh, John is talking about. And so this viewpoint is talking about how Christ will physically return after the thousand years um, that John is talking about here. And so you have premillennialism, you have postmillennialism, and then there's, there's one more viewpoint that some people talk about that is all millennialism. Um, 
which is pretty much saying that right now we are like in those thousand years and it's kind of this belief of like, man, there's those thousand years are more like an imagery. Um, it's not necessarily like an actual factual thing, uh, but it says that Jesus will return, you know, without like an actual set date of a thousand years. And so this is a little bit of the context and a little bit of what we see before we get to verse 11. So we're not really gonna, you know, talk about those millennialism things, but I just want to make sure you're aware of it because I think it's good discipleship for you to know uh, that scholars and throughout history, people have debated which one is which, but here's the thing. The return of the king is going to happen. Like it's going to happen. And so that's the biggest thing that we're going to see. And so in God's own timing and his own way, he's going to bring the world to an appropriate end. He created it perfectly he's going to end it perfectly and then the Lord is going to judge all mankind at this court date and so that's what we're going to see and so as we read Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 to 17 I want you to write down this one main focus okay this one main focus is so important for us if we're going to read this and if we're going to read it well and it's this that God's justice is the perfect balance of his divine mercy and wrath. That God's justice is the perfect balance of his divine mercy and wrath. And then we also have it in Spanish if you, write it, if you want to write it down. La justicia de Dios es el balance perfecto de su divina misericordia y ira. And so we'll keep that up just for a little bit so you can write it down. But we have to understand that no one is qualified to judge except the Lord. No one is qualified and perfect enough to say, you have done wrong, only the Lord himself. So we're not going to be seeing other people, judging other people, or in this courtroom with other people. It is the Lord, it is the King who judges. And so we're going to read, starting in verse 11, which is that little number. So here we have John, and, and he's going to describe to us what he has seen, you know, after, after Satan has been thrown into the lake of fire. Um, and, and then it says that they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, verse 10. Then verse 11 it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, Standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead uh, that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so this is what we're going to be looking at. And uh, a little bit more of context as we get in this. There are scholars, and again in history, people have said that there are like these two big judgments. These two big courtrooms, you could say. These two big judgments. And so what we have just read is, is the this, this second one that most of the time people talk about. Um, but there's also this other uh, judgment 
that I just want us to make sure we understand because it'll actually help us understand a little bit more of what's going on in verses 11 and 17. Because verses 11 and 17 actually has a little bit more to do with the unbeliever. Most scholars say that this is literally just talking about those who did not place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then there's this first judgment, which is going to be the first point for us, which is about the judgment seat of Christ. But the way I've titled it is like this, the Bema seat of Christ. And so why Bema? So whenever we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due uh, us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And so whenever we read this, that phrase, judgment seat, um, is actually the word bema, so the bema of Christ. And so what's a bema? People back then would have understood what that is, but today we're like, what in the world does that even mean? So I want you to imagine, um, you know, people over here, and they're like in their chariots, or they're fighting, or I don't know what's going on, they're running, I don't know. And there was a, a spot right here above everything that was being played. There is a spot that was called the bema seat where this man or this individual would stand up and their job was to see what was going on and to make sure that everyone is following the rules who was playing and that they would make sure that they would get receive the right reward. So, so the Bema seat wanted to make sure, okay, you're following the rules and also you get your right reward. It was not the place to condemn. It was not the place to look at the people who were playing and saying, you know what, I'm going to punish you for this, I'm going to punish you for that. This seat was just looking, following the rules, and reward. And so when we look at this, um, at this word, the Bema seat, you actually find it in Romans chapter 14, uh, verse 10 as well. It's really helping us understand that as believers, man, we will be judged by the Bema seat of Christ, by the judgment seat of Christ. And so whenever we are being judged, the Lord is looking at us, not in the sense of like you receive salvation or not, because that happens way before the Bema seat, way before the judgment seat. But the Lord is looking at us very practically and saying, what did you do with your life? What did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the time that I gave you? What did you do? It's, it's not necessarily a place of punishment, but a place of like, hey, like, come on. In other places in scripture, it talks about the crowns, that we will receive crowns, but then we will receive those crowns and those rewards and give it back to the Lord. And so we see this Bema seat about how it's for the believer and how those, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus will be judged in this way. Because we know that when we are in Jesus, in Christ, that he is the one that represents us in the courtroom. He's the one that represents us when we're standing before him and saying, man, Jesus is the one. Like, not my works, but his works. And so whenever we recognize that, I think it, us very practically helps us understand, in my life, I have to be careful of what I'm doing, what I'm not doing, how I'm using my life, how I'm not using my life. And this is why even like as a church or as a familia, when we're like, hey, let, let's serve here together. Let's serve like this. It's not because we, you know, want to do something cool. It's not because, you know, we think we're all that. But it's because we want to do the best that we can to, to look at you and, and, and say, man, let's use all of our life all for Jesus. Let's make sure that we, we are standing there and the Lord is at that Bema seat, at the judgment seat. Man, that we are the individuals who say, I tried to live my life obediently, 
and I died trying my best to be obedient to you. And so we see that whenever we are in front of the Lord and, and we are looking at our reward, who really our reward is Jesus, and he's going to be asking these questions and it'll be this moment where <clears throat> he is saying, man, look, look at me, look at your reward. And I'm just reminded, again, whenever, whenever we talk about that, I'm just reminded of how God began so perfectly and created so perfectly and how he's going to end things so perfectly and how from the very beginning, God had the cross in mind. From the very beginning, he had the death and resurrection of Jesus in mind. And, and one thing I want to make sure we, we package today is, is the death and resurrection of Jesus makes everyone savable, you know? But it's whenever we accept him and accept that gift of his death and his resurrection of salvation that then we become saved. We have to accept that gift from him. He has done everything possible to just say, here, take it. I've done all the work. I've put in all the effort. Here's my hand of grace. Man, just take it that we are saved. And so as we read and, and do a little bit more dissecting on verses 11 to 17, and I want you to understand again that God's justice is this perfection, this, this perfect balance of his divine mercy and wrath. And so the second judgment that we see is, is for the non-believer. And this is actually where we're going to be most of our time for the non-believer. And that's what is called the great white throne. So that's actually the second point for us. So judgment number two is the great white throne. So I'm going to try my best not to sound like a college professor or like someone who thinks they're all smart and stuff like that. I promise you that's not what I'm trying to do. But it's really important for us to understand what's going on in these verses. Because I think when I talk to people, um, I don't know if it's Tulsa, I don't know if it's Oklahoma. But like I talk to people and, and I'm like, hey, I'm not trying to scare you. But I just hope you know like hell's a real place. And some of them are like, you know, I just feel like when I die, I'm just not going to exist anymore. And I'm like, hell is, hell is not a place where you go to stop existing. Like, like hell is the place where you will fully experience the holiness and wrath of God. Like God is not going to be over here and hell over here. No, God, God's going to be present and you're going to feel the full wrath and holiness that he has. And it's a real thing. And it's not like God enjoys, you know, enjoys. It's not like God is like, man, I want everyone to go to hell. That's not what he says. He says, I want everyone to be saved. I want everyone to experience my grace. And it's that rejection of him, of why people are there. And so in verses 11 to 17, we see these individuals who will be judged by the great white throne. And so in verse 11, again, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. So we have John again just saying, this is what I saw, which reminds me of Isaiah. Isaiah was like, man, this is what I saw, and, and I just, I don't know how to explain it to you. I just know how to describe it to you. And so you see that even, the, again, this imagery, that even the, the heavens and, and the earth, they fled, which is just this beautiful imagery of how un perfect things, imperfect things, not perfect things, however you want to say it, they fled, they flee because of the holiness of God. 
that God is so holy that anything that is not perfect flees from it. So it's this imagery of the heavens of the earth of like even the heavens and even the earth needs to be restored by the Lord. And so it's just this imagery even for us of like, man, whenever we're worshiping the Lord sometimes, whenever we're in his word sometimes, whenever we're in our car and we're trying to pray sometimes, instead of wanting to like walk towards the Lord and his holiness, we just want to run away. We just want to flee. Rather than actually picking up our Bible and saying, Lord, what do you have for me today? We go, God, I really don't care. Instead of, you know, trying to sit with the Lord in, in prayer or sit with him and worship music or whatever that looks like, we are just like the earth and we want to flee from his presence. But the Lord is all present, he's almighty, he's all knowing, and no one can flee from his presence. And it's not like he's forcing his presence on us, but because of his character and his nature, he is always there. And so whether we want him there or not, he is there. Whether we say, God, I don't feel you, he's, he's there. Whether we're in the car and we're driving, he's there. Whether we're at our house eating lasagna or tacos or whatever, like he's there. Like the Lord is ever present and he's always there. And it's amazing how it says that, that he was seated on this throne. And, and it's just amazing because... We know that the one who is seated on the throne is the Lord King Jesus, that he is the one who judges the living and the dead, that he was given the name above all names. And what's cool is that in Matthew 25, actually, Matthew 25, verses 31 to uh, to 32, Jesus actually connects kingship with judging. He connects kingship and judging because it says, this is his words, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so again, you see this kingship and this judging and this rule. And as we keep on uh, reading, we have to ask the question, who is he judging? Who is he separating? Well, verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And so again, you see people, great and small, people with a lot, people with a little, people with great status, people with little status, And a lot of people, especially back in the day, used to say, like, man, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Well, here we're seeing that the ground is level at the throne. The ground is level at the throne, and we're looking at these non-believers who, despite their status, despite having great money or little money, whatever, these non-believers are still standing before the Lord. They're still facing Jesus. And, And whenever I look at this, I have to really think personally, like for you and for me, think personally and say, if the ground is level at the foot of the cross, if the ground is level at the throne, and we're doing things in life to try to prove something to someone, or try to prove something to someone that we love or whatever, what are we doing? You see, if the the judge, if the one who's going to look at us is the Lord, what are we trying to prove to other people? Because I think that sometimes in our life we, we do things or we say things in order to try to prove something to someone else. That we're good enough, that we made it, 
that yes, we have everything that we need. We try to prove so many things to so many people, the people who are judging us, who are saying things about us, even though the only true judge is the Lord. And so you have all these non-believers who are leveled and grounded at the foot of the throne. And, you know, what's interesting to me is that we do try to prove things to people and we try to prove ourselves and do lots of things. But if you read carefully, it says that these individuals were judged according to what they had done as recorded in their books. The non-believer, because they don't have Christ, will be judged upon what they have done, not what Christ has done. You see, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus will go into the courtroom and say, listen, I know I'm not good. I, I, know, I've, I know what I've done, but look what Jesus has done. Like, check him out. Check him out. Like, like, I trusted him to be my representative. Check him out. But those who have not put their faith in Jesus have looked at Jesus and said, I don't need you. I can represent myself. I can say the things to the courtroom if I want to. I'll show them everything that I did. You see, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever been in court before. I, I don't know if I have been. Maybe like once. But um, I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom before, but I've watched a lot of, like, shows about, like, courtrooms and stuff like that. I don't know if you guys seen Suits or Suits. I mean, not Suits, Suits. I've watched a lot of Suits um, in the courtroom and stuff like that. But what's interesting is that someone who's in a courtroom, they don't look at the judge who's looking at them and saying, hey, you did this. The person here doesn't say, I know I did that, but I didn't do that. So I should be, like, set free, right? No, 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 no. Like, you stole that. So... You're guilty, so you go to jail. I know I stole that, but I didn't kill anyone. I, I didn't hurt anyone, so I should be free, right? Sometimes that's what we try to do. We try to be people like the people who are like, you know what? I know what I did, but I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. Okay, well, you're still not perfect, and you still did that. And so we're in this courtroom. We're not being judged by anyone else's standard except the Lord's. And so we look at these non-believers who are judged by their deeds, their, their deeds are recorded in this book, their name is not in the book of life, recorded in the book of life. And so, at this great white throne in judgment, we have these non-believers who, alongside death and Hades, are thrown into the lake of fire. But you know, there's a lot of good news here. I know it sounds like a lot of bad news for those who are not in Christ, but there's a lot of good news here because there at the end it says that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, which for me wants to ask the question again, like death, where is your sting? Because here we are just ending God's perfect ending, ending death, ending Hades. And literally, if you just keep reading one more little chapter, verse 21, it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new, and a new earth and it just keeps going and going about restoration and restoration and restoration. And so just to end, I know that was a really quick summary. But just to end, all of this should bring us to a question. And it should bring us to just one simple question. Is when will you bow down to the king? When? When will you bow down to the king? So there's a lot of summary here. There's, there's things we talked about. There's so much more we could talk about. We could spend hours and hours and hours on this passage. But it should bring us to the point of when will you bow down to the king? Because we still have time today to do that. We still have time to bow down to him. But there will be a day that it will be too late. There will be a day that will be too late to acknowledge him as Lord for salvation 
It'll be too late to obey him. And so I want to bow down to the king and obey him as I live and as I die. And so that's the question for us today. That's the question for you today. When will you bow down to the king? Because everything we've talked about has actually been talked about for centuries and centuries and centuries. I actually want to show you a picture. And this picture is actually really cool. Uh, it's considered a masterpiece. It was, it was uh, painted by Michelangelo uh, somewhere in the 15, 1600s. But it's in a church, and he painted all of these things so that when people walked in, they would have a visual representation of creation, but also judgment in, in the courtroom and how the king was going to return. So every time they would walk in, they, they would have this visual representation and have a reminder of like, oh man, I should probably live today bowing to the king because I'm reminded, I'm reminded of what he's done. And so maybe we don't have something painted like that in our church today, but we have a representation right here in front of us in the word of God, maybe, maybe not necessarily visually in picture, but written down. That should remind us today, man, I should bow down to the king. And I can just imagine sitting there just in silence, just looking at all of the, the imagery, looking at all the paintings. But I, I can also imagine reading this today with you and bowing down in silence and having this powerful reminder that one day I, I will stand face to face with the eternal judge one day. And I hope and pray that everyone in this room would say, I need Jesus as my representative because I have bowed down to him today. And that's my prayer today for you. And so I'm gonna pray for us and we'll continue. But I hope that question resonates in your heart and your mind. When will I bow down to the king? Lord, in this moment, we, we come before you so thankful so thankful that even some of the most complicated things can be drawn to a conclusion or to a question. Lord, right now I pray that understanding what the, the non-believer will go through, this judgment that they will go through for every deed that they did, rather than the work that you have done. Lord, I pray that it would push us to share. Lord, that it would push us to share the gospel and disciple and to serve and to give all of our life to you. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that all of us, all of us would bow down to the king. Lord, because we know in Philippians 2 that no matter what, at some point, everybody whether they like it or not. Every tongue, every nation, every tribe will bow down. So Lord, today we do it willingly. Today we want to say that we love you and that, and that we do confess our sin to you and that we do believe in your life and death and resurrection for our sins. God, we love you and we praise you. 
Jesus' name I pray. Amen.